You're listening to Artistic Finance, Show 64. On today's show, I interview theater artist Elena Newell. We discuss We See You Watts' list of demands for making American theater more equitable. This is the second of two episodes in which Elena and I go through the document and discuss each demand that relates directly to finance. We also have a side discussion on Actors' Equity's new membership rules allowing any actor to join. Without further ado... Let's get to the show. You're listening to Artistic Finance Podcast, where your host, Ethan Steimel, interviews successful artists, leaders, and investors to help educate and inspire artists to grow their wealth. Welcome, everyone, and a special welcome to my patrons. I'm your host, Ethan Steimel, and today I welcome again Elena Newell to the podcast. Welcome, Elena. Hello. I'm glad to be back. <laughs> <laughs> so we are recording this on August 11th, 2021, during the COVID-19 Delta and Lambda spikes, a Black Lives Matter slow burn across the world, a Stop Asian Hate campaign in the U.S., and just yesterday, West Side Story on Broadway announced that it is not going to be reopening after only having run 24 performances, though it did have 78 previews, so it did run for several months, just not officially open. So that was a big disappointment because everybody thought it was coming back. Jesus. Oh, wow. Um, Elena, before we started recording, you were saying that you don't think this is the Broadway revival everyone's expecting. Why Why are you thinking that? I love the idea of it. I, I love that everybody's excited, but we have to look at these cases. The cases, there's more cases now than there was a year ago today when this was, when we were in the quote unquote, like height of COVID and cases are spiraling. Everything's getting heightened. And of course, you know, Broadway is making all the vaccination requirements, but I just don't think, I think we're on the way for it. Like, I think we're on the way to another shutdown. And I don't want us to open. There's so many people, like, there's so many people making Broadway debuts and moving up there for these events that I know, me personally, I would be crushed, does not begin to, like, describe how I would feel. And I just think having all those people in one room, we're seeing it, like, on West End, you're seeing, like, every two weeks, the shows that are now open on West End are like, oh, so sorry, we're closed for two weeks because we had a COVID outbreak, even with the vaccination requirements, even with having the audience vaccinated it's still happening and i just don't think i wish it could happen and if it does you know so be it i'll be happy for everyone but i just see that this is all about to shut down really really soon and i don't want i feel like we're just moving too quickly i think elena i hear you and i go to the beat of my own drum i think we're gonna reopen Citing no evidence like you just cited west end closures (laughs) (laughs) i'm thinking if everyone's vaccinated and everyone's wearing a mask. I mean, it's really the cast and crew and, and people working at the theater, to me, that we have to worry about. Because the audience is in and out. And yeah, you can contact Trace, but I mean, who knows where they're getting it. They're going to dinner before and after. So to me, it's the cast and crew. But if they're all vaccinated, I mean, and if they don't see the audience. So I think we can reopen. That's, that's what I'm thinking. And I do realize we're spiking everywhere. I mean, I feel like the spikes are... Louisiana and places <laughs> with low vaccination rates. Like there, there are spikes everywhere. No, I gotcha. But the huge ones are places with low vaccination rates. And New York City has a pretty good vaccination rate. I actually feel like we're on, we're, we're going upward. Maybe that's blind optimism on my part because I've had a year and a half of negative news. But I think we're going to reopen 
But I do understand the producers and people that are all tied to these shows that are very worried, especially because West Side Story just got canned. <laughs> and I well, honestly, let me say this. I think we are going to reopen. I just don't know if we should. I think everybody's kind of tired of lockdown. And even if we could benefit from another one, I don't know if we're really going to go into a widespread one like we did originally. But I don't think we should open. But I'm I'm sure we're still going to open. I mean, they're already open, to be fair. Like, Broadway is already starting. I Maybe I'm just itching to open. But I, I'm not itching to open just to open. I just think we have vaccines and we have masks. And we like we know that those things work. There's nothing more we can do. I mean, granted, we could get everyone vaccinated. But from what I understand, that's not going to happen. I think so. I saw something. Maybe it was on TikTok or it was Twitter or something. And somebody was like, this just needs to be like survival of the fittest at this point. Like, if you're not vaccinated, we just are all going to take a risk and we'll just all hope for the best. Um, but if you're listening and you're not vaccinated, I understand your hesitation. But please, dear God reconsider please get vaccinated if you're if you're listening and you're not vaccinated please 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 email me at artistic finance podcast at gmail.com because i am just so curious who listens to this show that isn't vaccinated i'm, I'm really curious please and answer please i'm gonna send a questionnaire i just have a couple thoughts concerns i just don't I don't get it. <laughs> this is interesting. This is interesting. Okay, so uh, if anybody wants to know who Elena Newell is, she is a theater artist. You are in North Carolina? I am. I okay, am. but you're coming to New York City soon. Yes, 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 yes. I'm moving to New York City by January. Hallelujah. Is that just an arbitrary deadline or? Slightly arbitrary, but also um, the job that I'm looking to move into would want me in the city by January. So do we not want to jinx it? Can you not say what the job is? Oh, it's not theater related. It's like That's a, okay. it's like a, a day job. It's like a marketing job. That's okay. <laughs> so it's yeah, it's not a secret or anything like that. You know, there's marketing jobs within theater. You're right. It's not associated with the theater, but it's just like a social media marketing job. And they would prefer you to be in New York. And so that's going to be the move. But also that was the move anyway. And I said January just because I wanted to give myself some time because realistically, I don't know when I'm going to be back here ever. So like just time to like pull my life together, get my savings in a place that doesn't look laughable and then move. All right. You, you heard it here first that Elena Newell is going to move to New York City in January. And in January, we will have a in-person interview for artistic finance. Yes. Just oh, my kidding. God. Iconic. We will. It'll be... <laughs> With the cast of West Side Story. <laughs> yes, as, as many of the West Side Story cast as we can gather, we will have them <laughs> here. It'll be great. <laughs> well, actually, on this podcast, I've had two of the dancers, and I had the makeup designer. And so I've had three people. Yes. Uh, and then me, I count. You know, I assisted on the lighting. So Yes, you do count. So we're at four. It's four. We got four of us. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Um, okay, so Elena was with us on episode 61. We talked about We See You What. We See You White American Theater, the movement that is calling out Broadway for being very, very, very white and not doing anything about it. Again, our disclaimer. So I didn't get any hate mail from the first episode. Yes. So that's the great news. So I'm expecting no hate mail from this one, which is fantastic. Stay tuned. <laughs> <laughs> but disclaimer anyway, we are not representatives of this organization. We are just two theater artists chatting about this. Yes. Yes. Please do not sue us. Don't send any cease and desist. I promise we have no affiliation. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so what we're doing is we see you put out this 29 page document of demands 
saying these are things that white American theater needs to improve upon, and we demand that they improve upon because they've ignored it for so long. And so I went through that list of demands, and I pulled out things that were related to money, and that is what we are talking through. So in the first episode, we got all the way up to number 33, which was allow the Tony Awards to any theater with 500 or more seats, a.k.a. allow the Tony Award to be given to shows at the Apollo Theater. I feel like that would be a fine, fine way to go. Yeah, I don't see why not. I don't see what the harm is in that. And, and I know they give special Tonys to random regional theaters and things. So you could give a special Tony to a show at the Apollo or to the Apollo or something like that. And that would be fine. But I also think opening up the shows there is like a good way to diversify Broadway without actually having to do anything. And letting them like instead of instead of it being like a very uh, like superficial. OK, here you guys go. Diversity. We're going to give them this honorary award that really doesn't mean much, but we're giving it to them so you guys can shut up. But actually letting them have a seat at the table, letting them compete, letting them feel like they're a part of this community that they want everyone to feel is open to anyone. I think, why not? Demand 34. So these numbers that I'm saying are the artistic finance list. It's my list that I made of 46 things. So this is my list, not the actual official document, but it's what I pulled out. So number 34 of the artistic finance list is... Gag orders to speak about wages must be eliminated. I I mean, basically, if, if anybody's confused, basically saying that, like, you're not allowed once you're offered a contract, it could be put in your, or it technically is illegal, but it could have been put in your contract that you're not allowed to publicly comment on how much you're making. Um, but all that does is encourage a wage disparity. And it's impossible to know if we're actually making any change and we're getting to pay equity or anything like that if nobody talks about it. And that's how we've even gotten to where we are now is that people have been openly talking about it and talking to their co-workers specifically about it saying, hey, this is what I'm making. I just want to make sure that you're getting paid equal to what I'm getting paid because we're doing the same work. There's no reason that that shouldn't be public knowledge. And it's it's also like that unsaid like oh if you if you talk about this and you ruffle the wrong feathers this actually this situation reminded me of um leslie odom jr when they were filming hamilton the one that's on disney plus there was apparently like a disagreement between leslie and the producers about what he was getting paid to do the disney plus production and he was like people he was like talking what was that on i think it was michael kilgore had like a um, during the height of the pandemic had like an instagram igtv like series where he talked to different artists um, and he was talking to Leslie, or maybe it was Drew Shade with Broadway Black. But anyway, um, he was talking about how they were have, going back and forth about this. And the way he determined what he thought he should be paid for that event is he was like, I don't want to be paid any more than I think I am worth. He happened to either be in the same management team or knows the management team of Aaron Tveit. And he said, how much did he make for Grease Live? For a filmed musical event where he is the lead, how much was he paid? That is going to be streamed on a wide network. Because he was like, that's very similar to what we're about to do here. That's where I am in terms of my billing. I just want whatever he was paid to the dollar is what I asked for. And they were almost refused to do it until the night before they were supposed to film. He called out of the show that day that they were supposed to film. Until they reached out to him and said that they would meet him where he asked to be paid or compensated. And the only reason he knew to do that, to even ask for that amount, was because he was able to find that information. But that wasn't publicly accessible. That wasn't something that he could have just known on his own. He had to dig for it and then fight for it and use that exact 
instead of just saying, this is what I think I'm worth, he had to then cite a different person and say, well, this is what he was paid for this, which is to justify that I'm somehow worth this amount. And so I think it just creates a space for everyone to be very open and authentic. And if something's going wrong, you can call it out. Because I think that's how a lot of these companies specifically in the theater industry get away with things like this is that they kind of shame you. Back to what we were talking about in the first episode, because you love it, because this is your passion, you should take what we're giving you or because we're paying you right now as much as we are, which is more than the ensemble or more than your standby or whatever. You should be grateful. But I think it's just about like being paid what you should be for the work you're doing for your skill set, just like any other position. If you have more years of experience, if you have more certifications, things like that, you get paid more. That's just how it works. And it should be taken over here as well. And one of the things I go in a corner and cry about, poor little me, (laughs) is that in my life and in my career, and I think everybody's this way, is in order to make change, you have to walk away. When they offer you low pay, you can try to negotiate, and boy, do I. But the real solution is to walk away and say, I'm not going to work for that. And they're either going to say, okay, we'll give you some more, or they're not. And from experience, 80% of the time, they do not. (laughs) They let you walk away. Yeah. But that's what you have to do. And since we talked, since the first episode of this, the We See You Want Instagram they have a post up that says it works when we walk. And I think that's that same thing of the Leslie Odom Jr. situation. Only the fact that he called out made any change. Like he had to leave and they could have let him go. Seems crazy, but absolutely totally could have let him go. But it forced their hand. And I think that's unfortunate. But hey, power to the people. And, and and we see you what they're actually because that post that says it works when we walk that is in reference to the Eugene O'Neill Theater Center summer staff they made a stance and they said we're not going to work so much for so little and unsafe conditions etc the theater company said stop you're clearly publicly shaming us big time so we're going to we're going to take action which which was good because like the flea theater just sort of shut down and like withdrew the solution's not perfect But change happened. (laughs) Yeah, you just have to be willing to give it up, which sucks that you even have to put yourself in that position. But but it works. Number 35, investors in productions should be made public. In terms of financial costs, this does not cost anything, except for it might cost you an investor if they don't want to be publicly attached to the production. They don't want to be linked to any specific changes that are made in the team and the pay or anything like that. That might be a financial burden. But in terms of like, does this cost anything off the top for this to happen? There's no cost there. If everyone who is paying for this project looks the same, it makes sense that they would want the creative team for the cast, for the crew to all look the same in a way or behave the way they think they should behave. I I think it's who's calling the shots. Yeah. Because in capitalistic world... Whoever's paying for it is calling the shots. And when I first saw it, I thought, I don't think that's going to work. Because like in a Broadway show, well, first off, there's investing units. And those are private companies. And so first of all, you can't make them show that. The other thing is the investment units are bought by companies. So even if you say, oh, it's X company, who knows actually who owns that company? I mean, you can go look it up too. But then you get into trusts and trusts can buy investment units. 
I land on theaters could actually do this. Productions could actually do this because if somebody is so worried about their anonymity, they will go through steps to work through a trust or work through a way where they're not part of it. But theater doesn't usually work like that. People usually want the credit. (laughs) One of the things that I think would be positive about this is that we're in an area of we're in like a cancel culture thing. But what you discover is that once these people are canceled, they really don't, they're not canceled, at least not where it matters to them, which is in terms of money. So I think the good thing about this is that when someone does mess up and they're publicly reprimanded, it is then documented whether or not these companies work with them in the future and in what capacity they work with them in the future. So if there's like a situation where Harvey Weinstein, if he invests in a show, it is clear that this com- this production this creative team has agreed to accept money from this man and allow him to work with this project and that's public so that everyone can know that this company is working with that person um and so i think for that side it's it would be really good because that way it'll allow more accountability for the people who are a little bit higher up when they make mistakes it still it still holds them accountable and they're still allowed we can still hold them to that without them kind of slipping under the radar and just doing whatever they please without us being able to, you know, see it. Okay, 36. Equal billing must equal equal pay. I think a lot of these go into what we were probably talking about on the first one, which is just talking about performers of color, women, things like that, performers or artists or creative teams in the LGBTQ. They're valued as less sometimes. So even though they might be taking as much work, their role might be just as big um, if they're working next to, say, Hugh Jackman and Music Man, you know, then their pay is valued differently because they're valued differently compared to those people. But if they're doing the same amount of work, if they're putting in the same amount of hours, then they should be paid fairly. And this still allows for hierarchy. You can put Hugh Jackman in a show, but his name has to go up above somebody else. It can't be Hugh Jackman and two other people on that same line, equal billing, that are getting disproportionate pay. Right. So you can still have like three superstars and then the ensemble, but those three superstars, regardless of who and what they are, that should be equal pay. And I I think that's actually good from an audience perspective because as an audience member, I want to pay people to perform. Like I, when I go and I buy a $100 ticket, I like to know that that $100 is paying for the venue, it's paying for the actors, it's paying for everything. And and that makes me feel good because I'm part of the economy, I'm part of this all. Knowing that the billing is equal, I don't know, it just makes me feel better because I know. Like, it's not uncertain of like, oh yeah, there's four names, but we all know that Hugh Jackman is getting paid more than those other three names. Just transparency. But that transparency of just like knowing that as an audience member. But that's sort of a just a... No, I don't think that's just... I think that's an everyone thing, just knowing that... Like, you want to know, even, in, like, on a, not a smaller scale, but on a different scale, like, when you're going to go to anything that you pay for regularly, like, if you're going to buy food, you want to go to a restaurant where you know that those workers serving you are being treated fairly. You want to know that. It makes you feel better. You don't want to go somewhere and you know, like, this place abuses their workers. You don't want to just, like, sit there and be like, well, can you get me, like, a sweet tea anyway? Like, you, wherever you are, you want to know that if you're paying for any kind of service or performance or good, you want to know that the people that are in charge of producing that are taken care of. Number 37, additional compensation for work outside of their scope of job. This one I think is great. I think it's a little hard to pin down. 
because I, and I noticed this more so in the more off-Broadway you get, the smaller your budget gets, the more people are asked to do. So I see this unfortunate thing happening in low-paying jobs. Um, and then when you get up to like Broadway and commercial theater and commercial events, I think it's a little more clear and they're hiring enough people to do all the jobs versus those little off-Broadway shows or nonprofits that are asking the assistant director to also be the stage manager, which means running the lighting and sound and projections and also being at all the rehearsals and also putting the furniture up and getting the props together. That I see more on the lower end. I, and I think the problem with that, I think everything comes down to transparency, specifically in the entertainment industry. There's no like rule book that says here's what a stage manager is and here are all of their listing descriptions of what they can and can't do kind of of course we have our unions and things like that to help kind of protect that but for a lot of these roles in in a wide scope there's nothing that says here's everything that a artistic director is supposed to do or here's everything that someone else is supposed to do so anyone can kind of mold and shift things to be like well who says the artistic director can't be in charge of this? Or who says the stage manager can't be in charge of this side of this? Or can't control this part? Um, but then still, still giving you that lower title allows them to justify their pay because of the title and things like that. And so I think that's the problem, I think, as well, is that there's not enough discussion about all the different types of roles. Things like, like an intimacy director. like That is a very special skill that requires... A certain amount of time you've spent working on it, you have to develop a practice over it. And so to ask a director to then take on that same role, that could then be negatively impacting the rest of the team around them if they do it poorly or they don't know what they're doing. Um, I think it can also, it can cause issues. It can lead to some problems down the line um, when you t make people take work outside of their scope because it's not what you hired them for. So you can't guarantee that's in their skill set. I don't know how we would do this, but I think I agree, additional, additionally compensate them. But also, in this age as well, I think the people are, these companies are forcing people to not just be performers or the creative team, but also be somehow representatives for the theater and that they're expected to defend these companies or explain these companies to other people when that's not their job. They're not running this company. They're not involved with it. So they shouldn't have to answer for a mistake that the creative team made and they shouldn't have to answer for a mistake that the producers made or that the artistic director made. Um, and I think those kind of positions as well, when um, in social media land, I think at least when things go wrong, it's everyone blames whoever they can get to, um, whoever they can directly access. Um, and then I think the emotional toll of that and the physical toll of having to deal with that also should be compensated, I think. 38, enslaved Africans worked without pay recognize how far back that puts them yeah i i mean yeah i think that's economically i think that's globally maybe i mean obviously nationally at least but that sets you back in terms like you're all like wealth in terms of unemployment that's the wealth gap everything is already set back your levels of education your access to that education um something i'm extremely passionate about is the theater college journey and how it's already set up for a certain socioeconomic group and so we can't be upset that broadway is all white when the programs that how like create these broadway beings are also all white i mean they that was pretty point blank i don't know what else to say about that one but it's a fact they're set back and you have to not necessarily compensate it financially but at least understand that and be able to work with that and move forward with it and i i think the reason this is even on this list of demands 
is because there are a number of people who say, it's America, baby, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. We, we all are born the same at zero <laughs> financially, right? <laughs> and, and people think that. But I think this, the reason this is even in this list of demands is because so many people don't understand that. They all think, well, I've worked hard. I've worked so hard. I, had, I didn't have it better than this other person. I think about this in my own life. It's like I went into theater. I had to have come from some sort of privilege to be able to take the low-paying internships I did that were virtually zero and spend months working for so little money. Like, how was I able to do that? Because I don't feel like I'm rich and I'm not rich and I don't feel like, you know, I could just do whatever I want. Like, no, I, I have to pay my way. I have to pay my bills and had to pay my college and all that jazz. But if you're in the arts, you had to have some way in because it's so infamously underpaid. How you can be white in theater <laughs> and think that everybody else has had an even playing field is just ludicrous. Two specific people that I think of in this is like, and there are two people I love, which, I, which is why I feel comfortable like talking about it, is like Renee Rapp, she was in Mean Girls, and Ben Platt. Renee Rapp, my best friend, was her best friend when they were in high school. So she, I interviewed her for Fourth Wall. She's brilliant. I love her. She's great. But if you go all the way back to their like inception of how she got into the industry, how she got to Broadway, it started with being financially able to go to a performing arts high school that was not near her home, for her parents to be able to afford to transport her to that school, to give her lessons to work on her dance, to work on her voice, to work on her acting. Then for her to be blonde hair and blue eyed, for her to be more digestible and for it to be easier for the creative teams in that high school to cast her as a lead in a musical. By win doing that, she wins a high school theater competition, which goes national, which she wins as well, which gives her gives her a scholarship, gives her money, gives her access that she did not already have. Now, is she talented? Yes, she's ridiculously talented. But going all the way back there to see how she got there, everyone's working just as hard, but she's working from like, five miles ahead and she's also running on a clear field there's no hurdles there's no pits there's no fire it's a clear field so yes she's still running and she still had to work hard to get to this place and she still has to run fast to get there but she didn't have to hit as many obstacles on her way up and like ben platt his dad is a producer there's a because there's been a lot about dear evan hansen and i don't think i have the public majority opinion because a lot of people are like eating him alive and i don't agree with it but that's none of my business um, but people saying, oh, he got this because his dad is a Broadway producer, things like that. And him not understanding that all the way, saying, well, no, my dad's not attached to this show. And no, maybe your dad didn't get you this job, but his position got you in your first show, which was The Music Man at the Hollywood Bowl when he was like three or four, which got him into theater. He was able to go to a performing arts school that was paid for by his father who had those connections. He was able to, even smaller things like, you don't have to worry about how you're going to pay for college. So you don't have to get a job that'll distract you from working towards your goals. You don't have to get any kind of like, you don't have to work in retail. You don't have to work a serving job to make ends meet because you have a place that is going to take care of you. You have people taking care of you, which automatically push you a little bit further. You know people in the industry because you've grown up with them. So they're more willing to help you figure out the things that aren't public knowledge. And so, yes, is Ben Platt extremely talented? Yeah, Specifically with Dear Evan Hansen, did he earn that? Yeah, he auditioned for something he had no business auditioning for. Pascal and Paul fell in love with him at that audition and was like, we love him so much, we want to write something for that kind of voice. And that's where we are. That's how we got here. 
But you have to look back and see that they were already set up. Like, my parents don't know anything about theater. Every day they beg that I go to law school because they don't understand how I'm going to make money from this or survive or be happy or anything like that. The people who raised them worked so that they can make money to their kids. They didn't work because they were passionate about their job. They didn't work because they loved that specific skill set. It was just to make ends meet and provide for their families. So the idea that I would want to do something that was just because I loved it, you know, just even that I have even my own privilege to say that I'm in a privileged place where I have the ability to chase my dreams if I want to. At least understanding it and can I think it's what you just said, like people thinking, oh, well, I just work just as hard without being able to even understand that this is a, a reality. That obliviousness, I think, is really dangerous. I think anywhere there's not transparency, it can be really dangerous. So I think with that, this is what I think that's what 38 is about. All right. 39 money for hair and makeup materials and consultants. So we actually did episode 37. We had Gerilyn Lanier Duckworth, who is a consultant for African-American hair and makeup in theater. So all I'm saying is they are out there. These consultants exist. Actually, my takeaway from talking with her, we talked for an hour, is she said, you know, it's really not about the money, you know, because you have big theaters, you have small theaters. No matter what their scale, they're going to do the show. But she said, the thing I hammer home is that it's about communicating. Like, it's about knowing what do we have, what, what, what can we have. If we can take this amount of money and, and focus it properly, we're going to be better off. Saying that, oh, well, there's not enough makeup artists or hair art- artists who know about these things. That's not true. I know even I know white makeup artists and white hair consultants who have actively reached out to me saying, well, I'm trying to learn more about this style of hair. Can you direct me to where I should be looking places to help me start? Like, I just want to gain. I want to know how to do this. I want to be an expert at this. I want to be able to help. But I think in terms of this is, yes, we want to get more, you know, people of color into the theater. We want to get more people of color working. I think this goes towards retention and retaining those black and brown bodies. I've been in many a show where everyone around me gets a makeup chart. Everyone around me gets their hair done by someone else. I have to arrive an hour earlier than everyone else because I'm expected to do my own hair because the people there don't know how to do do it. And if I don't want to look absolutely insane, I'm going to have to do it on my own. And that can be frustrating. That happens That happens on Broadway. There's like um, Amber Amon has this insane story about when she was touring with Hamilton, how she was expected to tape manage the wigs that she was using because the people there weren't trained on how to manage them correctly. That happens in movies. If you're getting paid to do everyone's hair here, you're getting paid to do everyone's makeup here, you are getting paid to do everyone's hair. If that's the case, then those actors should be additionally, back to 37, additionally compensated. If they have to manage their hair, if they have to do their own makeup when no one else in the company has to, then they should be compensated for that. And they should be able to put a makeup consultant on their resume. And also, okay, two things about if you can't get a hold of somebody that knows it. First of all, anybody can do it and they can learn. And second off, bridgingthegapintheater.com. That's Gerilyn's website. You can email her and she will hook you up. Or she'll come do it, whatever, you know, whatever you need. But she can connect you. She knows everything. Yes, plug. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so 40, transparency of salaries. I think that's pretty pretty self-explanatory. It's just good to know what people are getting paid. Yeah, (laughs) yep. The negatives of that are like, oh, people get mad at each other. 
And that's good because you need people to be mad at each other so that we can sort of balance things out. And I think it's like it's in the it's in those dark places. It's in where you are unsure. That's where people get taken advantage of when there's not transparency. That's where that happens. 41. Eliminate the healthcare weeks requirements because that money is being taken away and not returned. At least Actors Equity. I'm sure sag After has a, the same thing or similar thing where you have to be employed a certain amount of weeks in order to use your health care plan for that year or in order to have guaranteed health insurance, I assume. I'm not an actor's equity. So also, one at one point, we should talk about actor's equity because they, they've they done a, a crazy thing. I was I was going to say that. What uh, For anybody that doesn't know what they've done, what have they done? They have this open access plan going until 2023, I believe, where anyone who has worked professionally in any theater, equity or not, that can prove it, show documentation proving that they were paid for professional theater work, can get their equity card. No questions. I mean, no, not no questions asked. You do have to pay. Um, and they also have raised the total initial fee to participate, even though they claim that this was all to be inclusive and to bring in more BIPOC performers. But then raising it, uh, I just, I have a lot of thoughts on it. But Yeah, so I have my theory, which is that they did not fare so well in the pandemic financially, and they needed money. And so... Maybe they did this for diversity and inclusion, sure. I just see it as we need money now, and so we're going to open this up to anybody who will give us money. And I say that because my union, USA 829, has done the same thing in the past, (laughs) where it says we need our membership up, so we're just going to open the doors. It's not to help people out. (laughs) It's because they want more numbers. And I think Actors' Equity is doing the same thing. Rumor has it you know, that SAG-AFTRA might just take them over and we get rid of Actors' Equity. I think they're sensing that, you know, and just need money and numbers. Yeah, I mean, and not only financially have they been struggling, like, publicly, a lot of scrutiny, a lot of things have been said about the public. Broadway-level performers have publicly denounced equity. They've dropped their cards, refused to pay any of their fees, and that's a widespread thing. We talked about in the last episode, like, the issue with the Cats tour, um, issue with pay inequities, things like that. That's been a big thing all pandemic long. Not only are they losing money because there's no one working, but also people are dropping the union at a very rapid rate. And are, they're not scared to. They don't feel like they're, there's no job security because right now there were no jobs. So there's no there's no job to lose. And so, yeah, definitely a money grab. They I don't think it's anything to do with diversity. Yeah. I, I met with somebody like a month ago because in New York City, there's a thing called a showcase code, which is a terrible, terrible contract. Terrible. It's just there's nothing good about it other than you can pay people nothing and put on an equity show. I was trying to do this concert version of a play. So I met with somebody from Equity on the board of Equity. I said, hey, you know, you know all these rules. I can't do a showcase code right now. Can you like find some other solutions for me to to be able to use Equity actors? And the answer was just get them to agree to do it and just pay them money and don't do it on an Equity contract and they'll never get in trouble. Equity is never going to go after them. Equity is so weak right now. Just do it. And I was like, what? But that was somebody at Equity, like who works full time at Equity, was telling me to like go around the rules. It was wild. Equity is a hot mess. And that's another thing is like they thought, oh, like any non ec people, like they'll be so excited. They'll just join. And it was like, no, it's been very clear more in this past year than ever 
that you cannot protect the people you have already, let alone the hundreds of people that you are trying to drive in. I went to two readings a couple weeks ago. I went to two non-equity readings, one musical, one play. I sat there and watched and I was like, wow, these people are really talented. And none of them, all 15, were not in equity. And so that was also on my mind of like, well, I was trying to do equity because I'm pro-union and I want to do it the right way. But then I was like, but there's all these non-equity people that are really good. Also, the union, a union should just be there to be an actual union and protect all the people involved. And so I think open access is a thing that should be discussed and happen in a less money-grabby sense just because as a union, it should actually want to protect all actors and anyone who wants to get into this industry. There should be a union to protect all of them. That should be what it is, not this semi-elitist club that you can only be considered for big roles if you're in this thing long term the union does need to exist for all actors that want to be in this industry so that all of these artists can be protected all of the stage managers that want to be in actors equity can be protected without being in actors equity long term there needs to just be a union in general a good one though not this one when i've talked with people on this show about uh, unions. When I've talked to people from London, or South Africa, or Australia, I used to talk about unions and say, oh, do you have unions? And the answer was always sort of like, no, nah, not really. Like, we don't really have one. Or if we do have one, it's not like your USA unions, you know. And I realized if the laws in the United States were a little better and people were, as, as a society, better off and, and take caring of ourselves, we wouldn't need the unions to be so strong. Why do people want to be in USA 829 and why do they want to be in Actors' Equity? Because of health insurance. That's a driving force of why people want to be in the union. Well, that's bizarre. Everybody should just have health care. And then that's uh, something the union doesn't have to worry about. I just sort of, it's just like cracks me up, you know, because the people out of this country are like, oh yeah, you have those great unions. And I'm like, yeah, because otherwise you're not protected. <laughs> Yeah, or literally, you have nothing. You have no thing. Wild. Wild. Anyway, okay, that was a bit of a tangent. <laughs> no, okay, so number 42 and number 43, invest in critic training, make it 5% of theater budgets and 15% from the New York Times. I guess that's 15% of what the New York Times spends on critics. Or on critic training. So spend 15%. I guess 15% of their critic budget should go toward yes. training. Yes, okay, okay. And then uh, 43, divest from salaried critic positions and invest in contract-based positions. In order to, for, to have a successful show on Broadway, at some point you need a good review so that the people know that it's a good show, you come into it. But when all of the main people who are on salaried positions, they've been here, they've been in this industry for 20 plus years, chances are it's an old white man. That's just the way it is, want, want. But because of that, that's from a very narrow perspective. And so you have these shows that publicly are adored, um, but then get eaten alive by the New York Times simply because it was not made for them. The show was not made for that per specific person. So because of that, that show is doomed to fail because the critics in this small network circuit, the power that they hold is real. Um, and it limits... Other industries, specifically because I've worked with Broadway Black, Drew Shade, I love him. He's an icon. He constantly talks about how he's the only Black theater publication, but anytime he's invited to an opening, a press event, he's literally, agents have instructed their actors signed with them to pass him. 
to go to a different place, to go to the New York Times, to go to the Playbills, other places, because they don't view him as reputable, because they don't view him as powerful, so because they his word and his impact is very small compared to others. That makes it harder for BIPOC people or LGBTQ or women to join these journalistic, like we need more Black journalists specifically. We need more female journalists because if all of the reviews are from the white male's perspective, then all of the shows that succeed are going to be catering towards a white male perspective, which means they're going to cast people that white males think should be cast and tell stories that old white men think should be told and things like that. The power that they hold is too strong. And I think the purpose of switching to that in contract based position. It transfers it so it's not about how long you've been there. It's not about your resume. It's about who are you? How do you relate to this specific piece? What do you know? What is your experience around this specific genre? And can you give a fair, unbiased review of this? Yeah, because when I first saw the get rid of the salaried critic positions and and do contract-based, at first, financially, I was like, oh, Well, that's a bummer because they're probably going to pay less for those contracts than they are for the salaried positions. And and then I also had this reaction of, well, that's like, do we elect judges or do we appoint judges? What's the right thing to do? We should appoint them and they should, you know, because then they're unbiased and they're not catering to certain people. But I also think that switching to that contract based is the same thing as saying, you know, removing a bunch of the requirements for jobs. Because it's like you're just eliminating so many people for no reason. You're just going to remain white if that's what you do. Like if you have white critics right now, if you don't do anything, you're going to continue to have white critics. And all the problems that you specified, those are just going to continue. This is an easy fix. Anyway, but this is a way that you financially could do it without going bankrupt or saying we can't spend the money. It's like, yes, you can. (laughs) You can can just reallocate. And I think the training... Like that side is also extremely important. There is a difference. Being able to critique an opera is different than being able to critique a play or a musical. Yes, they're all art forms, but they require different amounts of work. They require a different set of skills. And so to have one arts and entertainment critic that is in charge of not only reviewing the, I don't know, Kanye West concert next week, but also to then flip and then go look at this, like, Madame Butterfly opera and decide from and the same person because you've made it a salaried position so you have less positions available. They somehow have to master all of that, which is impossible. But I think including it to the theater budgets allow you to have training programs that specify training critics for the theater, just the theater. So that they are trained in that and then they can move on and take that training and apply it to other things. But then that means you're having people review your shows who actually knew the work that it took to get put into it. You know, like they see the lights and they can see from the lights like, oh, this took a skilled lighting designer to be able to create this. This wasn't just like someone being like, oh, well, I could see all the actors. So the stage was lit. Great. Okay, number 44. Producers divest from trades and marketing companies that do not have 50%. BIPOC members. I think that's easy. Okay, here's the technicality of a way you could do that. (laughs) Say you have Spotco advertising agency, and that's who you use because there's only three marketing agencies for Broadway shows. Literally in the United States of America, you can go make a company in 10 minutes. You could just do a spinoff company 
So people can't even say like these don't exist because you can make it so easily. But also, I think this is great because maybe Spotco and the other companies will up their BIPOC membership. I was going to say that, definitely. And also the, the word divest. It's not like you have to do this overnight, but you can say, here's our objective, you know, just like any sort of movement is say in three years, we want this. And that also gives like a tangible plan towards creating action instead of just saying, this is what we want and we want it right now. Being able to say, this is how we're moving forward. We're giving you this time so that if you want to continue to work with us, then you will do the work to meet these requirements. And if you don't, then that's fine. But then it's we're not blindsiding you. We're not trying to ask you to create something out of thin air overnight. We understand that everything takes time and that we might not know the ins and outs of how this all works. But we know what feels right to us and not just financially, but I think this creates space for actionable change that's actually long lasting and not the one and done where this one thing happens so that we can like check it off our box. Like we weren't racist this year. Let's move on. I think this is a way to create like lasting change. And I think it's also good that it's aimed at producers because producers work on multiple shows. So you see a show. Yes, each company, each show is an LLC. It's its own individual thing. Aiming this at the producers means this is going to hit multiple shows. It's not like, oh, Hamilton is using a marketing team that is 50% BIPOC. The producers of Hamilton are also producing these 10 other shows. Then all of those shows are going to have sort of a title change. Okay, 45, buy ads in BIPOC publications. Yeah, I like, I mean, this won't, if you dedicate that to your budget, that's not going to cost you more money by choosing to do that. I think that just increases like the ecosystem of BIPOC, BIPOC of publications. There'll be more there. There are, the reason, the only reason that there's one right now is because it's not a financially sustainable model right now because people don't rely on them. Unless you're in that specific, you know, subgroup, then maybe you rely on it a little bit more. Like I love it, but I think this produces not only, you know, when we're thinking about equity in theater, we're not just thinking about equity like on the stage and behind the stage, but in every single department that makes theater run, you know, we're looking at the producers, we're looking at the marketing companies, we're looking at the publications and trying to create equity across the board. And I think this encourages that. And I don't think it costs any money if you like budget it. And also, if you don't know of any BIPOC publications, you mentioned Drew Shade earlier. Broadway Black. You can go to the website, broadwayblack.com. You'll see me. I'm a, a content writer on there. Um, he has a podcast off book. <laughs> I'm going to be like, true, I plugged you on everything. Literally the only black theater publication. But you'll see he's at every single event that happens in Broadway that involves any kind of black body. He is there and he is covering it. But a lot of it he's doing on its own. It's not he's not profiting from it. A lot of it is literally money that he's been investing into it since I think it's been running since 2012. So there's of course, there's been times where it's been more financially su uh, sustainable than now. But something that he has refused to give up on and it's only sustained now because he's made it sustain. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. Email Drew Shade and let him create. And he's so good at that kind of stuff. Like the people that do request him to do anything like that, like he makes it top tier. So if you have a show you're promoting specifically in New York. All right. So everyone should go buy an ad on his website. <laughs> email Drew Shade. Email Broadway Black. Let him do it. He'll do it. Okay. This is a side tangent. What is his podcast called? Um, It's called Off Book the Black Broadway podcast, something like that. Um, it's him. It's in Guzzi and Yamu. Oh, gosh, if I pronounce her last name wrong, I'll literally scream. But she's in a very <laughs> successful playwright and actress. And then Kim Exum, who's also a very successful actress. 
Kim Exum is the current Nobilingi on Broadway in Book of All Mark. right, somebody who's listening, go buy Artistic Finance and add on that podcast. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> All right, 46. We have made it to the end of this list here. Woo-hoo. Eliminate pro bono work of BIPOC alumni for networking for BIPOC students. Pay them if requested. That, I think, goes also back to the outside of their scope of work. Yeah, I, and I think with this specifically, the alumni, I think that gets a, that's a tricky phrase because people think... Well, because you went there, you should want to help other people that went there. And that's the case. But BIPOC alumni take it. And I know this now that I am an alumni. I do take it very personally to help any other BIPOC students there. But they really champion. Like the man who quite literally produced my podcast, who has helped me with anything theater related, Tyler McKenzie. He's been all over Broadway, all over tours. It was him deciding to invest in me because of who I am and how we knew each other. And we went to the same school. But he wasn't paid for that. He represents our school a little too much i don't like the way our school treats their um students of color but i think he's responsible for like half of their auditions per year has to be because there's no other way that people would know about this school it's so small and it's not the top theater program in the world or anything like that i don't think he gets paid for i think he should if he's not he definitely should be getting paid but because he went there people assume that because you paid to go somewhere that then it's your job to bring them more money I think they pressure BIPOC students in that way specifically because it's easier to be like, well, if you don't do it, then they're not going to succeed. We're not going to do the work to make sure that these two black kids in this program in this class succeed because that's harder and we don't understand how to do it. So if you do it, then you'll guarantee their success. And I think you just put an unnecessary amount of pressure and like that's the faculty's job. That's the administrator's job to help those students succeed. That's not their alumni's problem, and they make it their problem. I I went to a PWI, and I was talking with one of the three black classmates that I had. They they were not technical theater, but I was saying, you know, in in our technical theater department, like, how can we get more BIPOC students? They said, Ethan, I will never recommend a BIPOC student go to our institution because of the experience I had there, I would not feel comfortable. And I was like, oh, which is awful. That being said, <laughs> I don't know if I just badmouth my <laughs> theater school. Oh, well, oh, <laughs> <laughs> whoopsie. Um, <laughs> that being said, I suspect like this thing, pay them if requested. I bet if somebody was like, will you come help us and we'll pay you to consult to like help us improve our program? I guarantee this person would go and help them. That that's a tough situation, but you know, money is an incentive. <laughs> and that could cause some change. And specifically now, I was literally I was just joking. I've been very vocal about my school. I don't have a problem talking about the school, Western Carolina, you know who you are. Um, I've publicly on my podcast and on social media talked about my experience there. I recently was joking with a friend and I was like, I think I should list myself. Like, on a resume, I think I can say I'm a diversity, equity, and inclusion consultant for at least four years of experience because of how many times I was brought into an office to deal with things that I was not clear. I don't have, at that point, I didn't have a bachelor's degree. I don't have a master's degree like all these other professors. And I was asked to deal with situations that they should have been handling, things like, how, how, how would we handle this casting? How do we handle these auditions? Elena, can you come up with some programs and initiatives to bring in more students of color? Things that I am not getting paid to do, but I was expected to do well because, well, you go here, so you should want this. And you've been asking for equality here. You've been asking 
um, to be treated fairly here. And if that's the case, then you'd want to work with us on these initiatives and kind of feeling like because you've asked to be treated fairly, then that means that you should handle all of their problems and be their Google. And I'm all for if you want to be educated, you know, reach out to someone. But also there's Google. If you don't want to pay a BIPOC artist for help with something, that's fine. But then don't ask them and be upset when they won't give you that information for free. For any other situation, you would pay someone. If you needed an intimacy director, you would pay them. If you needed a choreographer for your show, you'd pay them. We've had, at our school, we had guest lighting designers. We've had guest directors. We've had guest choreographers. And they have paid those people to come in and fix a need and fix an issue in our school. And I don't think this changes. I think this is the exact same thing. If the issue is bringing in students of color, if there's an issue to be solved that you will make money from, you should compensate the people you're asking to handle that issue. Yeah, yeah, totally. Okay, so Elena, thank you so much. We got through the list of 47. If you want to see this list <laughs> that I put together, that's at artisticfinance.com. But if you want to see the 29-page document, go to com and you can read through it, not just the financial stuff, but every single thing. And if nothing else, it'll give you some great ideas just to have in your head to sort of subconsciously maybe cause some change. <laughs> and also, we've plugged a lot of things. Like, who did you just plug that does hair and makeup consulting? Yeah, Jan Geraldine Lanier-Duckworth. Bridging the gap in theater.com. <laughs> Correct. So if you need, we've already given you a lot of resources and access to get these things. So you don't have to make the excuse. You, have, you now know someone that you can ask to be a consultant. You now know a BIPOC publication to promote your work, broadwayblack.com. You now know these groups. So that we're running out of excuses, everyone. We're running out. And this podcast, we focus on the finance. There is a podcast called Fourth Wall. Wow. <laughs> Hosted by Elena Newell. And it talks all about equity in theater. Yeah, we talk about discrimination and bias in theater. And so if you want to learn more about this, we talk about everything from race, uh, massage noir, uh, sexism, fat phobia. We really talk about it all over there. And it's only going to get more complex and we're only going to take on more topics in our upcoming season. Stay tuned. It's most likely coming out late August, which is now, and then early September. So just keep your eyes peeled, everyone. Amazing. Well, Elena, um, thank you so much for doing this. I, I'm so glad just to be able to talk through this. So thank you. <laughs> thank you. I had a great time. Two out of two. Two great times. <laughs> oh, and just one more really quickly. What's your Instagram handle or where do you want people to find you? Follow me on Instagram, which is just my name, at Elena Newell. Twitter at Elena Newell underscore because someone took my name. <laughs> or you can follow us on Fourth Wall and talk to us through there. We're on Facebook at This Is Fourth Wall. Our Instagram is also This Is Fourth Wall, all spelled out. Or you can email us at fourthwallthepodcast at gmail.com. So yeah, connect with me anywhere you see fit. My name is attached. If you go to Elena, you'll find stuff on Fourth Wall. And if you go to Fourth Wall, you'll find stuff on Elena. So pick your poison. Elena, thank you, and I'm sure we'll see you again in the future. Yes, thank you. Thank you for having me. <laughs> that was the second of two episodes discussing the financial side of We See You What. Check out the first one via the link in the show notes, where you'll find links to everything and everyone we discussed in the episode. To listen to the outtakes from today's conversation, visit our Patreon page, Patrons get early access to shows and all bonus episodes. They also support our mission to get artists comfortable talking about finance and help defray the costs of the show. 
And if you're wondering if you too can become a patron, absolutely. You can become a patron at patreon.com slash artistic finance. If you're not ready to become a patron, but you're enjoying these shows, please leave us a rating on Apple Podcasts. The more people we have following, subscribing, and rating, the more new listeners we can reach. That's it for today. Until next time, break a leg. Thank you for listening to Artistic Finance. Make sure to subscribe. To access our show notes, transcripts, or resources, go to artisticfinance.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by Artistic Finance. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.